Welcome to another episode of Asp and Answered. Today, Eric, Katie, and myself, Chelsea, are joined by Dr. Len Zykowski, who served as the 12th president of Asp from 1997 to 1998. Dr. Zykowski was at Boston University and is now consulting full-time with the Pittsburgh Penguins. He's also an author, a collaborator with many other professionals, but instead of me talking about all his amazing accomplishments and everything he's done, Dr. Zykowski, first and foremost, thank you so much for joining us today and making time for us. We are so honored to be chatting with you today. Let's start off with you giving a 30-second kind of elevator pitch bio about where you are now. Don't worry about how you got yet there. We'll get there in a second, but just about where you are now. Okay. Um, yeah, 30 seconds is tough, but... Uh, you know, after uh, 38 years at Boston University and heading up uh, one of the uh, original sports psychology training programs, I retired, went to work for the Vancouver Canucks to kind of create a kind of the first of that kind in North America sports science program. And uh, so I went there from 2010-13, and, uh, and when the league went on strike, I decided to go back to New England. But uh, uh, so when I had a bad winter in, in New Hampshire in 2013. Was, I thought it was time to move south, so we moved to Florida. So in 14, I came down, 2014, came to Florida, spent uh, spring training with the Red Sox, consulting with the Red Sox. And then uh, um, other stuff started happening. Uh, I was invited to work on a project and writing a book which I thought was a good idea because, you know, as a professor, you have such a limited impact. You've got grad students, you have your crazy lectures, and you have to perhaps write some textbooks that nobody reads. And uh, <laughs> so I uh, uh, wrote the book, The Playmaker's Advantage, that Derek, Derek Jeter, uh, when he retired from the Yankees, published as part of Simon & Schuster. And so it was a whole book on uh, – on, uh, as the title implies, uh, the playmaker's advantage. And my take is that these people are just a little bit sharper than everybody else. So the importance of the mind and, and quick thinking, uh, being able to make decisions under pressure. Uh, so the book is based on that. And I think that's had a much more powerful impact on kind of the general mental skills area than anything I ever wrote about in academic textbooks. And then we did that. We did a follow-up book on on that uh, uh, playmaker's decisions. Uh, I wrote that with Dan Peterson, and uh, so uh, uh, that's kind of where I'm at now. Uh, uh, involved in another research project with my Australian colleagues that I'll talk about later because I think that's going to be uh, going to have a profound impact on the field of sports psychology. Mm -hmm. So um, yes, I'm still active uh, and. Uh, Still, and kind of enjoying retirement too. Great, thank you so much. Um, so, one of the main ideas, or one of our purposes in doing this podcast, is we really hope to better understand how the key figures like yourself got to where they are today. Would you give us a bit of background on your pathway um, that led to you all of those amazing accomplishments? And in that, if you want to talk about any significant moments that formed your experiences in sports psychology, that would be really helpful for our listeners. Yeah, thanks. And I did write about some of the stuff in the Playmaker's Advantage, too, <clears throat> kind of my, my pathway to how I got to where I am today. But uh, 
I did, uh, I'm originally from uh, Northern Alberta and Western Canada, and uh, I went to the University of Alberta, who had one of the better, best sport training programs in, 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 in North America. And we had a professor there by the name of Dr. Murray Smith, who is just a legend. Many of the Ash people got to meet him much later in life. He was, I invited him to be the Coleman Griffith speaker at the uh, conference in 1999 in Banff. And uh, kind of on one of those unknown gems, except the students who had him. And he got his uh, uh, degree in counseling psychology pretty late in life. But he was just a brilliant man who worked in the world, primarily in sport, but also in performing arts because his daughter was a you know, world-class uh, performer. And uh, Murray had a huge impact on me and at a very young age. I want to be like that guy. So he was kind of my, my model for how what you have to know and, and how you teach, you brilliant teacher. Um, and he didn't write many uh, scientific papers, anything like that, but uh, he, he had a huge impact on me. And of course, when you go to a place like Boston University, uh, that's a research institution, and it's uh, truly the publisher parish in business, and I didn't want to parish. Mm. So I, you know, I got into uh, uh, the academic world, and I had a huge interest in in cognitive neuroscience, even at that time, in part because of my training, which I did at the University of Toledo, and a multidisciplinary PhD. So um, uh, that was kind of the, uh, the pathway to, started with Murray Smith at the University of Alberta. And uh, then uh, when I got to Boston University uh, in, in 1973, uh, after my PhD, I did my master's at the University of Oklahoma, and uh, were kind of sports science related mostly. But uh, at Toledo, they allowed me to do an interdisciplinary PhD, uh, mostly in psychology. But I spent a year at the medical school studying the brain and cognitive neuroscience. Wow. They called it neuroanatomy in those days, and uh, it was a program. Uh, I had to go every Saturday morning to kind of learn about the brain. I thought everybody who was going into psychology needed to study the brain. <laughs> Little did I know that, that that wasn't true. But God, how that paid off was absolutely amazing. So uh, Dr. DiDio was an Argentine professor, just a fun guy to be around. And I learned a lot about the brain. The good thing is in, in that, uh, you know, 50-some years, um, the anatomy of the brain hasn't changed. However, uh, what we know about it has changed significantly. So uh, little did I know that uh, I would end up using it as part of my research um, in biofeedback and neurofeedback. For, that was kind of the bulk of my work at Boston University in training students in psychophysiology. Uh, but then uh, at the end of my career at, at BU, we did some fMRI studies that I just uh, incredible pieces of work that I couldn't have done without having some of that neuroscience background. So um, uh, it, it, those were kind of major events in, in my development. I should say that, as I started to say, when I was at Boston University, when I came there in 73, uh, in 75, they asked me if I would go the following year to teach in the, in the program. They had a, a contract with the Department of Defense 
uh, and it would involve teaching research and teaching psychometrics and uh, counseling psychology, essentially for master's level students in the Department of Defense uh, throughout Europe. So I started off in Naples, Italy for one semester and then uh, two semesters in Stuttgart in Germany and then one year in Heidelberg. What a beautiful place that was. And uh, so uh, while I was in Heidelberg, the International Sports Psychology Group was meeting in Prague, which was a short, relatively short drive from Heidelberg where I was living to, to Prague. My wife and I went over there and what an eye opener it was. I was, you know, really young, younger than even you guys at that time, meeting all kind of the giants in the field at that time. Quite a few North Americans were there, but mostly European. And that's where I met uh, Yuri Han and the great Russian sports psychologist and stayed in contact with him well, to this day. Uh, but he's now living in Finland. But I made it a point to really network with all of the leading people in sports psychology around the world. Mm. And uh, I was always kind of a network person. And I guess that's advice I'm giving, giving later to everybody who's in the field, to connect with these people, with, with people in the field. And uh, it pays incredible rewards by continuing that network relationship. So I would say that my early start at uh, U of A and then uh, the ISSP introduction to the world and uh, people in the field was very significant for me. Dr. Zayaksi, thank you. That's so interesting. I haven't heard a lot of those stories, and I love that you're willing to share those. You said you were doing really neuroanatomy and biofeedback in 1973, and it seems like in the sports psych field, it's only really kind of populated in the last 10 to 15 years, except for small pockets like it sounds like you were doing. Was that pretty um, – were you kind of the pioneer of that in the sports psych field? I guess you'd have to say that that's true. Uh, uh, Sue Wilson at University of uh, – at York University in Toronto, uh, uh, was quite involved as well. Um, and she's still active in the field. But we were kind of the two people leading the rush, uh, but the only people coming out of, out of sport, uh, essentially. But I'd go to all of the early biofeedback meetings. I found it so fascinating to think that we could use technology to, to learn self-regulation skills which is huge in, in, in high-performance world where you have to regulate your, your performance anxiety. And, and I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could use this? And I'm, I'm listening to the giants in the field talk about how they're using it uh, in different therapy sessions and uh, dentists using it to teach relaxation, physical therapists using it in that same way. Uh, and, the, and the field grew and I kind of grew with it. But I'd go to all the annual meetings and try to bring back stuff that we could use in the world of sport. So I had a pretty significant biofeedback lab at BU and trained many, many students. I think when the last one I trained would have been, um, oh, let's see, there's a, a whole host of people. But uh, uh, we'll, um, we'll, t- we'll talk about that a little later. But I think that was uh, that work. Uh, it's probably one of my significant academic uh, contributions for sure. Excellent. Thank you. I'm also curious if you wouldn't mind sharing 
when you started inter- getting introduced to some of these people, getting these opportunities, when did you first hear about sports psychology being a field of study or being this, um, even just this idea? Do you remember when that you were first introduced to this idea of sports psychology? Well, it would have been at the University of Alberta, but but nothing. There wasn't even a textbook at that time. So I'm talking mid mid sixties. There wasn't even a textbook. And then shortly thereafter, I think it was around sixty eight, sixty nine. Bob Singer published his book. Jack Cratty published his book. His book. These are names that well, I think some of you would recognize Bob Singer, but Cratty hasn't been heard from decades. I'm assuming he's passed away. But uh, those were the first two. But you know, only books that you could kind of get to kind of study sports psychology. So we don't have Google, Google and Weinberg or Gene Williams. But those are the early things. So, so that that word sports psychology that that's about when it appeared. Uh, although I should say the Europeans started just a little bit earlier. Uh, Vanek at, in, in Prague, uh, they, they had been written about. And I think the the association, the International Society ISSP, was formed. In, in, in the 60s. So, so that's, it's, there's still a relatively new field. Uh, and of course, it's evolved significantly. Yeah. yeah. I have another question for that. So you said you were in Europe for a couple of years working, and then you really talked about how the ISSP was really um, instrumental in kind of your background. Um, how was the collaboration with inter- individuals in the international field at that time? What, does, what did that really look like? when you were still um, kind of young in your field as, you know, we can't just send out emails, it's snail mail that could take multiple months. What, what was that collaboration like? Or was it pretty, um, pretty, pretty sparse? Well, it, it was sparse. You know, somehow we survived because even though communication was, was difficult, we still had, still had phones. We did have email. Uh, fair, fair. And, and uh, you know, I made it a point to really – communicate with these people who I'd met. I was re- grateful for that opportunity. And they would send me students to, to BU uh, over the years. And, and then they retired and that all kind of fell away. But it, uh, it, it was doable. We, was, we thought it was pretty damn normal. <laughs> but under today's fast communication system, it was pretty abnormal. But we did it. And, you know, we'd use the conference occasions uh, if not every year, every other year to to get together again and share information. Uh, uh, it was true collaboration, and there were such wonderful people uh, uh, in, in the European countries. So I, I used that time while I was there for a uh, year and a half uh, in Germany, particularly to, to to travel to their places and their universities, give give some talks, meet the students, and. Uh, and uh, work with the professors on joint projects, yeah. It's very cool. Beautiful. Now that we know a little bit more about your story specifically, we'd love to get a snapshot of the field before your presidential service. So how would you describe the field of sport and exercise psychology and the organization, ASP, prior to you running for president, and if you could elaborate on the things that were particularly relevant or significant for you, that would be great. Yeah, let me, f- I wrote something down on that just so I, that, that some, uh, like to narrow that down. Snapshot, this is where you have the snapshot. 
Yes. Uh, um, well, <laughs> the notes I wrote to myself uh, tells me that what was the field like uh, basically was a, a young association with tremendous growing pains. Um, mm. And uh, most of the uh, people in the field were had an interest in application of sport, but there was a significant number of people. There were a significant number of academics. This got all started in academia primarily, not so much today, but uh, there were folks who really had a, a, a passion for exercise psychology. And they, you know, that was kind of you know, the way the organization was set up at that time. We, we had kind of a uh, kind of sport world, and then we had the exercise psychologist uh, groups, and the conferences would be kind of run that way, uh, and did for for a long period of time. Uh, and I thought that was pretty healthy, but the, the sport people clearly outnumbered the people who had that passion and for exercise psychology, and. Uh, so that was kind of the way the field was divided at the time. You know, there was uh, there is probably no surprise to any of you. There was always the controversy over who is the sports psychologist, the licensure issue. I recognized that real early in my career. Uh, actually, when I was in training, and I, I knew that's where I was going to be going, and I kind of said to myself, because I nobody who would I tell this to. I had a multidisciplinary PhD and a lot of clinical work because at that time I'd gotten into biofeedback pretty significantly. So I did a lot of clinical work with PhD bio licensed biofeedback people. I got my clinical hours in that way, and then took the exam. Licensed psychology in Massachusetts. We got a license. They said, you know, there's going to be a, there's going to be a day not too far down the line. So we're talking here now, mid seventies. There's going to be a big fight over this, <laughs> and I better be prepared. And I was prepared, uh, but I feel <clears throat> sometimes we we overemphasize that. Uh, I think it's. It, 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 the, like, I tell people there was only one time in my professional career where anybody wanted to know if I was licensed or not for the work I was doing. And that's when I consulted with, with the Boston Celtics and they were affiliated with the New England Baptist Hospital. And yet, in order to work with them, you had to have an affiliation with the, with the hospital. And in order to be affiliated yeah. with the hospital, you had to have a psychology license. So I met all the criteria. That's the only time I've ever been asked. And so I think it, it's overblown. Uh, and uh, people basically who you work for, the consulting field was pretty young at that time. They didn't know how to ask these questions about licensure and non-licensure. Uh, they just wanted competency. And I think to a large extent, that is true today. However, uh, you know, it's kind of my, my word here while I've, I've got you uh, listening to me that, uh, yeah, I think 
it's really quite valuable if you can get into a, a program that will get you perhaps eventually licensed as a practicing counseling psychologist. You don't have to be a, a trained in clinical psych so much, but for sure in counseling psychology, which is more of a not a whole lot different. You can't really discriminate. You know, if you look at two programs, one counseling psych, one clinical psych, you, you couldn't really tell who's who. Uh, and that's true today too. But uh, you can get some pretty darn good training in, in working with clients uh, <clears throat> in cases that get a little more clinical in nature. But I've really, <clears throat> people are amazed that I've never, that, that's been my experience. Even though I'm licensed, they don't ask for it. Hmm. So I don't know that. Dr. Fully, your question, oh. uh, you're talking about the field as I came into it. Um, yeah, that was kind of what that was like. Um, uh, Dr. Zykowski, you mentioned growing pains. And so what were those growing pains? Could you highlight maybe a, a few of those if you feel comfortable? You mentioned the kind of the, the link between licensure, but could you mention some of the other ones that, that maybe you saw as you were coming through that field? Well, uh, communication. Um, I don't know if we've talked about this yet, but the whole uh, way in which asked, we just kind of ran out of like a ma and pa shop. Basically, <clears throat> the president, the president-elect, past president, um, they were all academic people. In part, they, they were able to get a little bit of support from the university. But you were it. And uh, you had a phone. Uh, you had to do your regular teaching. It, I don't think I got, maybe I got release time for one course from the university. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. But uh, it was a lot of work because that's where the headquarters were in the office of the past president, and it was at a particular university. So there was, that was, and so I'll be talking about that later, and one of my big pushes was to, we, we've got to get more professional and get, have uh, an executive director. We didn't have that. You know? mm. Like I was, when I was president, and people that preceded me, I, was, I couldn't remember what, where I was down the line, but Chelsea, you mentioned it was the twelfth one, right? So, so yes. all the people before me, I'm thinking starting with John Silverman, Ron Smith, right after him. Uh, that we all—that's how we ran the ship, and I, you know, so I could lean on these previous eleven people, people like Larry Brawley, just kind of uh, went in a different direction academically, and so uh, he's no longer active, but we. All those people we could lean on, but basically we, we all did that kind of dirty work. So it wasn't wasn't easy. So when I said we had growing pains, God, it was growing. Uh, trying to um, professionalize that. Yeah. Hmm. It's interesting that to think about that area. I know some of the other presidents have mentioned something like that. So knowing that it was, you know, your headquarters, your office, not a lot of release time. What specifically motivated you to run for president then? What was that push that kind of got you in that, that pipeline? Well, it's not something that you do like in the normal world of politics. You, you run up and announce your candidacy and <laughs> you're running. No, it's all these 
So look, you know, you've had so much experience in this field, and, and it wasn't all that much, but you know, uh, twelve years after the formation of ASP, uh, you think you'd be good for it? And I, you know, I thought about it. And I thought, look, no, why don't I give it, give, give it a go? And uh, sure enough, I got the most votes, and, and so now I'm president, and you know, president elected, <laughs> president, and then past president, and, uh, and so there you are. And I knew what I was getting into, you know, because I talked to everybody before that and worked on committees. I was, I don't know if you knew, but I was chairman of the certification committee. Uh, Ron Smith talked me into that uh, over a beer, I think, because that was. One of, the, one of the great hardships of, uh, of my my life in ASP being chair of the certification committee. That was in the early days where it was mostly kind of portfolio assessment and, yeah. and then me and a small committee playing God and saying, you know, you're, you're on board, you know. Uh, that was tough. You know, fortunately, we've evolved that. So that's part of that growing pains. Uh, but uh, we, we chuckled, we, you know, in spite of the fact that it was a difficult time and a lot of hard work, God, there were some fun times, you know, just incredible good times. Maybe I'll get into that a little bit in the stories, but those, they, they were just such good people, you know, and similar values. And people liked a good social life, and I was part of that group, yeah. Does that answer your question a little bit? Or? Absolutely. Yeah, my, my interview might be a little different than most you're going to encounter. We hope they're all different. We hope that's part of the purpose is just hearing the unique stories. They're so fantastic. So you go in eyes open. You've talked to people. You understand the expectations a little bit and what this is going to involve what were you really hoping to accomplish going in when you decided to throw your name into the hat? What were you hoping to accomplish if you got elected as president of ASP of the organization? What were you hoping to get done? Well, first and foremost, to get uh, enough support to to get a, to hire an executive director of an executive office. Uh, yeah. th th that was huge. I got tired of shipping boxes of stuff all over the place, you know? <laughs> and so, and so that was the main thing. But also, I was hoping to accomplish was to uh, try to get uh, rid of the ugly consequences of certification. Where I think there's still people that won't talk to me today, where they refuse certification uh, based on their, you know. Uh, pretty thin profile uh, of experiences in the field, but they wanted to get into the field. And uh, so uh, uh, it would be important to uh, try to uh, get to a certification process where, where we're at right now. I was trying at that time to, to given my international connections, to work with the European Sports Psychology Group, and, and particularly the British uh, Sports Psychology Group, so we could have kind of one unified standard. Uh, 
that mm. fell on deaf ears. You know, I thought that that would be a natural to kind of internationalize the field in terms of preparation and uh, expectations. That that fell on deaf ears. There seems to be some movement in that direction today. But uh, I started that uh, back then in the, uh, 1998, 99, yeah. I, I just have this picture of you showing up one day to your office at Boston University, and there are like 15 paper boxes <laughs> waiting for you as you get into the office, and it's your welcoming to being president. <laughs> yeah, and then, then they'd be throwing, skewing it on the floor, and I'm looking for stuff. You know, that was my filing system. <laughs> oh, well, it sounds like you had some really lofty goals going in the executive director search, trying to make connections. What would you say your main accomplishments, which we know that as presidency is so short, but what would you say your main accomplishments after you served as president were? What, what did you accomplish while you were in that position? Well, I think I managed to get Aspen to the digital world. I think, you know, it was important to do that, and, and that kind of happened almost right after I left office. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a significant accomplishment. The other one, you might chuckle at this, but it's, it's people who came up to me and worth talking about. The venue I chose for the 1999 convention in Banff, in the Rocky Mountains, and people mm-hmm. still talk about that. And, and, and it's like how often they talk about a venue. You know, nobody talked. Well, other than people still comment on Murray Smith's uh, unique uh, Coleman Griffith talk, but it was the the, the venue. Um, I don't know if any of you have been to to Banff in, in the Rockies, but most Americans had not been. But I knew that part of the world grew up, grew up north of that. But <coughs> uh, uh, President Lex at that time. One of their jobs was to find the, the venue for the conference, uh, two, one or two conferences down the line, and it was by region, and it was supposed to be northwest. <clears throat> so I recall going, making one road trip, Portland and, and Seattle and Vancouver, and then dashed over to Calgary, and then uh, well, and I just dropped down to Banff. Uh, you know, it's about an hour drive into the mountains and uh, it's a ski resort and they had a they had a performing arts academy there every summer where wow. teenagers are learning to become artists and and i happened to be there and i was there on mother i remember it was mother's day a beautiful spectacular day and uh they they hosted me so so well and offer such a good price of this. We've got a little gap. There's nobody around then. We've got all these uh, rooms available and the conference center. It was just I- ideal. And uh, I knew weather could be a bit of an issue, but you know, that was late September, uh, not bad. And uh, they gave, me, gave a heck of a price as I talked to my pre- predecessors. Got that kind of a deal taken. So so we did. So and everybody says, Where the hell's Banff? How do you get there? <laughs> so uh, at any rate, it was just we we had all four seasons in that one week. Because you know, as a board, we went there those two days early uh, to have meetings. 
and it was like 80 degrees, beautiful sunshine. We did a little bit of golfing late in the afternoon because, you know, the days are long there at that time of year. You could, you could golf until 1030 at night. Uh, but, uh, and so there'll be uh, Monday, Tuesday, and then the conference started on Wednesday. And at that time, we still had a, a pre-conference golf tourney. People want to get, which always organized internally. And uh, so I arranged a, a nice club not far away. And so they asked members to come in, do their afternoon golf. And then Wednesday night with the Colin or the presidential address. Or, I, think, I think it was the, may have been at that time, may have been, no, it wasn't the it was It was a uh, presidential address uh, on that Wednesday night. And then the meeting started, of course, on, you know, things we had some of the pre-conference seminars too. But uh, then it started to cool off a little bit. But the other crazy thing was that it's, it's uh, Banff is, is a national park. It's, it's all kinds of animals there. And it was mating season for elk. And so it had all these horny elk running around the place. And <laughs> and, and it was stories people were talking about running into the, these elk in mating season. And you have a walk sometime, maybe 200 yards, 400 yards, 500 yards to a different building. And uh, it, it was wild, uh, and the uh, conference went beautifully, and the uh, venue was spectacular. At any rate, uh, uh, on the Saturday night, we had kind of a wind-up banquet, and it was kind of a, because that part of the world was settled with Native Americans, that uh, we did a kind of a great big teepee, uh, a fire inside. Wow. And the food was being cooked around there and grilled. And people from all over the world amassed this place and just can't believe what they're seeing. Just, just the sheer beauty of the environment. We're outside and still fairly warm. But then all of a sudden, around 8 o'clock, it starts to snow. And so that, that's midsummer weather turned to kind of spring weather. And now it's fall weather. And, and it snowed, I'd say, that night about four inches. So it's going to the top of that teepee because it's pretty wide up at the top, so the smoke could come out of there. And it's falling under the fire inside the tent. And it's just a scene that it's hard to make up. But uh, it, uh, you know, and then the, the geraniums are still blooming, but they're covered with snow and there's red popping out of the white. And it was really pretty spectacular. And uh, so um, the conference ended with uh, that snowfall. And then everybody wow. typically departs on Sunday morning. And Sean McGovern, who was one of my student, grad students, uh, uh, was from Calgary. And so she invited a number of us back to Calgary for Sunday afternoon festivities. But I had to, to wind down. I had to go to uh, the outdoor Spa in Banff, you know, which was pretty spectacular. We have that six inches of snow and steam rising. Now it's sunny, brilliant sunshine. And uh, so my colleague John Salmon and I went to, to the spa. So this good way to bring it to an end. And 
And then we brought a six pack with us and put it, stuck them in the snow to get cold. And uh, this was a good way to end it. So that was uh, that was a significant uh, accomplishment for me to accidentally choose a, a venue that people still talk about, you know, 27 years later. It's so funny you say that because when I was uh, doing my master's program, I asked Robert Weinberg, I said, you know, you've traveled all over the world. You've gone to all these conferences. Where's the best place you've ever been? And without a split second of hesitation, he said, bam, best <laughs> place I've ever been. It was the best conference. It was amazing. It was so spectacular and just oh, unreal. So, yeah, well, you're not all that far from there. It's a little bit of a road trip for you to head up north. Yeah. Definitely on the list. Yeah. Thanks to do. Yeah. Yeah. I see there's well, anything I, else that I put under there on uh, the main accomplishment. No, those are the things that are really the, the bringing Aspen to the digital world and then uh, having a very successful, unique conference in Banfield. Dr. Zajkowski, you said you wanted to have the executive director role put in. Was that something that was able to be put into place while you were president or was that a few years afterwards? Oh, it may have been just in the year after, yeah, when we got our first executive director. Uh, but it's not the group we have now. We went through a number of different ones in the early stages of it, uh, trying this model out. Uh, but uh, it's been a huge plus. Yeah. You know, all the – I just going to add, too, you know – the, when papers were submitted for the conference, it, it, it was all done through mail. And so uh, you're getting these boxes of stuff, and these are abstracts, and there's you know, 500 abstracts in there. And then we've got committees, and they're scattered all over the country. Resend it out. And uh, uh, it, was, it, 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 it was crazy. But that, that was considered normal in the day, you know. So, so with the abstracts, would you copy them and then send them out to reviewers yeah, and then yeah. they would rate them and then send them back to you? Yeah, yeah. Or whoever was heading up the, the scientific committee, yeah, for ASP. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Yeah, it was different. It's no wonder. Yeah. It's amazing. Like three years seems so short as a president. And then to think like a huge chunk of what you're doing is going to be just logistical things to make sure everything is running. How any of the early presidents accomplished anything is amazing to me. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if you've done, talked to Jean Williams yet, but she, you know, she's kind of a legend of remembering stuff that I can't remember. But she, she, she's got a heck of a memory. And, uh, and, and, and particularly stuff related to the Constitution. of asked. She knows that inside out, you know. And I couldn't be bothered with that. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Zakowski, I'm going to be honest. I don't know how we beat the stories from Banff that you have shared between the beautiful scenery and mating season for elks and finding the site on accident. I, I feel like you've already answered this question, but now I'm very excited to hear if there's more. This is our official story break. Uh, we'd love for you to tell us a fun story from your time in the field. Anything goes. Whatever you'd like to share that brings a smile to your face. And bonus points, though, I do have to warn you, these points are more like whose line is it anyway, where the points don't matter. Yeah. But bonus points anyway, if you involve some other ASP members in your story. Um, 
Well, it, it comes back to when I got on the on the on the e board, and we had one of maybe it was a president elect, <coughs> and we met in San Diego, and uh, you know, for the I guess it would be the spring meeting, uh, or Penny McCullough. Uh, New people there, and new who had a boat in the bay, and so we're, we we worked like crazy during the day, and then shut down for evening. And we go on the on this big boat, and her friend had so the whole e board essentially, including student reps, and I think Wade Gilbert. I don't know if many of you know Wade; he's now at Fresno State, uh, along with along with his wife. Uh, Wade was very much more advanced than many of the e-board members then on the digital world, and he helped us incredibly. <coughs> so, uh, I don't, yeah, he, yeah, he and, well, he, I don't know if he was married to Janelle at that time or not, but they, they were, he was a student at the University of Iowa at the time, and uh, uh so we had this whole evening of food and drinks on this, I guess you'd call it a small yacht. <coughs> and it was just a great time to, you know, to you know, kind of talk about events during the day at our regular meetings, but then a lot of other stuff and get to know each other much better because we, you know, we were all from different parts of the country never got to see each other very much. We didn't have the benefits of Zoom calls and so forth. Then. So uh, the, uh, it, it's the, uh, it was the, uh, that kind of social gathering. Uh, <coughs> that was uh, so influential and in bonding the e-board together. But it, it was led by, uh, you know, Penny McCullough was a past president also. And uh, but then uh, Dr. John Samella, who read, had the pro, uh, led the program at the University of Ottawa, who unfortunately since passed away. Uh, but uh, they were kind of the party animals, and they got everybody on the e-board to become party animals. So they have to, have to push me very hard. But they, <laughs> they, they were amongst the most eventful uh, times we had together. Uh, and so th that was one uh, kind of little story. Um, the other I just shared with you earlier was the uh, kind of the wind-up uh, for me in, uh, in Banff, where after you kind of breathe a sigh of relief, the you know, conference went well. We had spectacular weather. Uh, it ended kind of crazy with the snowfall, but even that was beautiful because there were people there had never seen snow. Mm. There were people from Houston, for example, and uh, many of the Australians <laughs> that were there <coughs> had never seen snow before. You know, we got about that much snow, just enough to you know what the snow was like. And it probably melted on that on that Sunday because it got real warm again. Uh, but uh, so we had all the seasons uh, in those uh, five, six days. 
So that was, um, uh, you know, and the story I wanted to share. And you know, that's probably something that, that, that Bob Weinberg was not on the uh, on the keyboard then. <coughs> so he wouldn't have been around for kind of the follow ups on that. But yeah, that was uh, kind of a, a fun time. Sounds like I just love the reminder that so much of the conference happens outside of the conference. The conference itself is so important and it's so fantastic. And then those social gatherings too, like you said, to build those connections and build those relationships and you work hard and then you go enjoy each other and have fun together. It's such a beautiful reminder of the importance of that. At that time I was in amateur winemaking business (laughs) and I'd bring a lot of my own bottled wine to share with colleagues they thought well i had my own label on it they thought it was pretty good and, and <laughs> we had to do stuff on the cheap you know like nobody really had a budget i'm not sure it's a whole yeah. lot different today but no so i back up a case of my own homemade wine which is pretty damn good and uh, <laughs> that, that was our way of imbibing <laughs> oh love it i love it so I want to shift back a little bit to kind of the sports psych field. And I want you to think about kind of where we are today and think about from, from the past, your entrance into the field, going through working at Boston, working in the field. How do you feel like the field has really evolved up to this point? And really, what are your thoughts on that, both good and bad about that evolution to where we are right now? Well, uh, I think the big evolution was having central headquarters <clears throat> that in my opinion is the most significant thing uh, that's a, surely a plus and developing strengthening the certification program uh, yeah. that seems to be working and, and, and marketed well enough so that the world of sport in general knows about it so all the ads for new positions require certification and so forth. That's been a very positive move for sure. Uh, the uh, So that's all on, on the positive side. Uh, the thing that I worry about most um, as the field moves forward is that we continue to have um, really good uh, training programs. You know, they were back when I was at running the program at BU, <coughs> I wanted to be kind of the best it could be within my control. Mm. And by that, I meant that we would be housed in, in, in counseling psychology. And there would be an APA-approved program. And it was. And then a new dean comes in and says, nobody's going to tell us what to do. We're going to pay these fees, fees for APA. Gone. So now you're no longer an APA-approved program. So you struggle and try to figure a way around that, which I managed to do fairly successfully. And then the new, new ins and outs of that business. And we get another dean saying, yeah, well, yeah, we can do that. And so this, this went on the whole time. You get you t- get tired of fighting that fight all the time. So <clears throat> when I hear discussions today, 
<coughs> about uh, approving programs. I think back to my days at Boston University, where if I went mm. to the dean and said, uh, this is what we're going to need to get to be an approved program in sports psychology. We're going to need these number of faculty, these expertise. Otherwise, uh, students won't be eligible for any kind of certification. They'd kick me out of the office. Zero chance. And I think that would be true at a lot of places, maybe not all places. Uh, unless you happen to have a, you know, a psychologist or a former sports psychologist as dean of the college, I knew it wouldn't happen. I, you know, I, even during my time, there was talk about that. You know, John Silver has always talked about that, and I said, you know, this is this is what happened at Boston U. And <clears throat> so I worry about that, and I, I'd like to. See programs continue to grow, not get watered down. Um, you know, we had some legendary programs. I don't want to offend anybody by not naming them. But you know, like West Virginia, Ed Etzel and others there. We were always good colleagues, people at Springfield College, at uh, Michigan State University, at, uh, you know, University of Utah, legendary group. You know, it was... Uh, and some were more like with Ron Smith. He had a small program within the psych medical psych program. But uh, <clears throat> there were so many giants in the field that I, I hope they're replaceable, like Bob Nidefer, who's minimally active now, living in in Arizona. Uh, but he was a, made such huge contributions to the world of sports psychology. Him and Bruce will go for sure. Um, but uh, again, uh, I hope we can replace some of those legendary giants and training programs that they led. <clears throat> you know, Bob Singer at Florida, the Florida State, for a long time had a pretty solid program. Dave Parkman was there, <clears throat> Bob Singer at one time too, and uh, and, Dick, and then more recently, Gerson Tannenbaum was there, but he since left and retired. So there's going to be this continued evolution of the field where people leave. And the question is, how well will they be replaced? Will they be mm. replaced by aspiring giants who have high ambitions to be the best in the field? Or will they be really okay with mediocrity? Mm. And, and, and Yes, that's my only issue right now. That's really powerful. And I, I think it transitions really well. You know, you mentioned accreditation and some of the really important considerations of the um, consequences, potential consequences of accreditation. But I'm curious if you could, now that that's an idea of the field, where do you think ASP is going as an organization? Well, one of the benefits, I think, of the central headquarters and the executive director and the people around there, uh, I think, and their experiences with other, since they, they also run other organizations, they got a sense of what it kind of takes to market it. And and I, th I think they're doing a pretty good job of that. Because I know 
I sense that in the pro sports world, that there's an awareness of a professional group uh, and, and concern about the training and competencies of individuals who are going to be consulting in the field. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's good. And I think that's a, an optimistic sign that we're going in the right direction in that sense. Um, I, again, I just hope that we can maintain some of the great standards that uh, previous leaders had at the various institutions, leading training institutions for performance psychologists, what they were able to accomplish. And, and yeah, we can do better for sure, you know. Um, you know, I was able at the end of my career to, to get a joint appointment at the medical school, so we created another program of mental health and behavioral medicine <clears throat> through the School of Medicine. But it was still a sports psych training program. We've got many ASP members who came through that program. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm optimistic. So given all of the incredible happy, A happy, optimistic view. Not to say it's all going to be easy, no, but I no. appreciate that optimism. I think it's important. Our next question was going to be asked by Katie. I'm not sure if she's still with us. No, there's the K there. Oh, there's Katie. Yes. Good, good question. <clears throat> well, uh, kind of lessons I learned and what I try to share with all my students is to read a lot. Um, you heard me talk about networking and connecting with people a lot. Uh, you can't do enough of that. <laughs> Connect with people in the field. Then uh, network. Uh, uh, Stay connected with them. Um, I can't count the number of ways this networking has helped me professionally uh, worldwide. So, you know, I'm kind of a world traveler, so <laughs> I'm really into this. And I'm still working with uh, my Australian colleagues, too. I uh, spent many time over there, and now my son and little grandkids live in Sydney. So I'll be going there in January to reconnect. But... At the same time, I'll do a business, a couple of business runs, and then go over to the Australian Open in Melbourne. Um, so uh, I think that's the important thing is networking with people worldwide. Learn from them. Share information you have. And don't be afraid to share. You know, I was always prepared to do that sort of thing. Um, and the other thing, uh, particularly for young people, is don't be in a hurry to to work with an MLB team, uh, NBA team, uh, you know, in a pro franchises. Uh, start with the young kids who need this more than anybody. And I did that for many years before I got into the high performance world and the pro sports and the World Cup stuff. Uh, it, uh, it took years of uh, 
preparation, and mostly working with, with young kids, um, and developing your own skill set, communication skills, and uh, knowing how to develop relationships with the organization you might be consulting with. That's always served me well. Um, so, and that's why I'm, I'm still doing that stuff. Uh, coaches trust me, and uh, I still think uh, I have a fastball, I guess, and haven't lost it. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I'll do it as long as uh, my, you know, my health stays, uh, stays as good as it is. Yeah. So uh, I hope that helps you uh, uh, a little bit with that uh, uh, for, young, for young people, Katie. Good. So, Dr. Zykowski, I want to shift one more time to a pretty um, big question. And so you've talked about kind of what you've done, where you are now, those experiences that have formed you. But what do you hope your field or your impact will be on the field? Well, I, uh, I thought about that a little bit and uh, put down a few points for you. Um, impact. I know wandering all over the planet are so many of my grad students. And interestingly, I stay in touch with most of them. You know, I haven't lost touch. So we're always sending emails back and forth. And, you know, I just think of some of the places, you know, from Korea to Japan to that side of the world, Australia, New Zealand, from Europe to UK, to Germany, to Brazil, South America, Ecuador, and Chile, Argentina over South America, uh, and uh, we stay, stay strongly connected, even though I don't think it, any one of them is a clone of me. Like so many mentors, they, they would like their students to kind of do what they did, and that was me, mm. wanted to do what they could do best. So I never really cloned anybody, and they're all doing very different things including a lot of exercise psychologist types. Um, so um, the, that's been a fairly big impact, I think, where I've been able to, to, to educate a whole lot of people who are going forward with expanding the field worldwide. And I'm really pr proud of that. I think the early academic work I did in biofeedback uh, bringing it to sport and then being recognized by people outside of the world of sport, uh, appreciating my work and and uh, I'll, I'll kind of leave that. I think as a one of the leaders who, who brought biofeedback and psychophysiology mm. to, to the world of performance psychology back when I was going up for tenure. We had a president who just didn't give tenure to anybody. And he needed recommendations from the leading authority in the world you're doing your research. So he has guys like John Basmajian, the discoverer of you know, EMG biofeedback, to, 
to write on my behalf, to read my papers and speak to them. Like so, so now I'm not just dealing with average people. These are giants in the field. He wrote a very powerful letter. And probably influenced my getting tenure at BU, you know. <laughs> Who knows where the hell I'd have been. But uh, there was that. Cool. Back in about the mid-90s, they had an international congress in Tokyo of people um, doing biofeedback research and, and applied clinical work in, in, using, in using different modalities uh, in different disciplines. In medicine and in, in physical therapy and, and uh, psychology and psychiatry and dental work and they invited me to come over as a representative out of sport and mm. to be in the in the same room with the the giants the founders of the field of biofeedback in Tokyo. And kind of hobnobbing with them and learning from them, and they accepting of me as, yeah, this stuff could make a difference in sport. What you're doing is making a lot of sense. Keep keep doing it. So I got that encouragement. So uh, that that's another uh, <clears throat> impact I think I've, I've had. But I do want to acknowledge other people that were particular Sue Wilson working at. Field now I, I trained Lindsay Shaw, who was at USOC for a number of years, bringing psychophysiology into USOC, and now she's working with the Cleveland Major League Baseball team as a consultant, mm-hmm. doing much of the psychophysiology stuff as well. So those are a couple of areas, but I think that what I really want to point now, kind of what, like, so what am I doing now? That's really exciting to me that I think will make a make a an impact on the field. Uh, it's working with my Australian colleagues, uh, Dr. Eugene Aidman, who I first met when he just finished graduate school in Russia on an expedition to the Soviet Union in the old East Germany. And I met this young guy who didn't speak much English, but I could tell he was smart. And and he just wanted to get close to us. And we stayed in contact. And then I went on an exchange mission to uh, Melbourne, Australia, 1991, and walk in to teach a class. There's Eugene Aidman. He, he, he migrated from Russia to, to Australia and uh, started out as an academic. But then the military found out he was really smart and uh, hired him to be their head researcher dealing with special forces. So and now his English is really he writes brilliantly. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, we got reintroduced and we've stayed in touch ever since. But uh, he uh, wrote a, a paper in 2000, uh, which he called, I don't know if any of you have heard of it, called Cognitive Fitness. Uh, he conceptualized cognitive fitness in a way that nobody else has really done. If you can think of it as an analog to physical fitness, like, we were asked you to kind of tell tell me what makes up physical fitness. You know, we, we talk about all those aerobic capacities, the muscle strength and endurance and so forth. But is there a parallel in the in, in the cognitive field, the components of cognition that we need to get fit? 
and maintain fitness, much like we do physical fitness. So he wrote that beautiful paper in, 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 in Frontiers of, of, of and in Cognitive Neuroscience. And, uh, and it got a lot of traction, got a lot of traction. So then Monash University put together a task force where they invited people from all over the world who were kind of leading experts in out of the military and special forces and uh, medicine and uh, general high performance world uh, and sport was one of them. So some of my, you see Eugene, I did mad. He was, he was a pentathlete in the old Soviet Union. <laughs> so wow. sport is always his passion. Uh, uh, so he, kind of helped with the people from Monash University to put together this task force. And then we did, we did Zoom calls here in the middle of COVID. And so we get all these 50 people exchanging ideas, trying to fine tune its components of cognitive fitness. Hmm. And, uh, and we, we did that and came, came, they came out a paper on that. And so, you know, again, I was fortunate to be invited to be part of that group. And again, that comes back to, I wouldn't have had that training in cognitive neuroscience. No, I had been part of that. That was a pretty prestigious academic group. Um, some of them were military psychologists as well, but they well-published people and so forth. Anyhow, uh, they, I think it might even be out now. Uh, they did a Delphi study. I don't know if you're familiar with Delphi, where you rank order mm -hmm. expert opinion. And so this paper should be out if it's not out. Uh, a Delphi study on cognitive fitness. What are the components of cognitive fitness? And it applies to the you know, the whole spectrum of, of cognition, from you know, uh, mental health and kind of weak area to superior level performance stuff. And I think it's going to be a wonderful framework for people in sports psychology to kind of use that as a way of training the components of cognition. And I'm a big believer on thinking fast, thinking slow, uh, at the appropriate times. But how do we train the brain to an executive functions to, to what I wrote about in the playmaker's advantage is that the great players are just a little bit smarter than the average cat on the ice or on the field. You know? And so uh, I think that's going to have a huge impact on the sports psychology field. So I'm now working uh, – the publication comes out, an author on that, co-author on that. But we're going we're, we're developing uh, Eugene and uh, Jeff Bond, who were for many years a sports psychologist at Australian Institute of Sport, and John Crampton, who also worked there. Uh, we're developing uh, apps to to make it easier to number one measure components of cognitive fitness and to the components of cognitive which will all be on an app sure. you can put on your phone or tablet, mm. make life a little bit easier. So I'm still trying to move forward. And I think when you thought the question, what impact I hope to leave on the field, that I think um, uh, this cognitive fitness academic pursuit will transpose more from the academic field into the practitioner field. Mm. And one last thing I should mention, I, for about the last half dozen years, I've been working with colleagues in, in the Denver area and in 
Purdue uh, developing an app uh, for decision making in baseball pitch recognition. So, mm. on, on game sense and my colleagues at, at spring meetings or at winter meetings, I should say, in San Diego from MLB, uh, trying to move our product. But so I, I'm still trying to use my ideas on feedback and uh, biological information and perceptual information. Skill. How do you acquire those kinds of skills? So, uh, I guess I'll be doing this kind of stuff <laughs> until it's over. You know? It's all so fascinating. So fascinating. So yeah, that's kind of the contributions I, I think I have made and will be making. Uh, again, the cognitive fitness will be uh, something that will be pretty new to a lot of people. I shared some of those papers with my colleagues, past presidents in Fort Worth. So it should be interesting. There's always always new stuff, and I don't want to be left behind. Well, I think I'm just so grateful for your willingness to see opportunities for collaboration, your emphasis in that collaboration, and not just collaboration, but international collaboration too. I think that's such an important piece because people around the world are doing amazing work and there's so much that we can learn from them and ways that we can work from them. And I'm so grateful that you bring that conscientiously into different spaces that you're in and um, help encourage others to see that as well. Yeah, well, thanks, Chelsea. Yeah, this this was kind of fun to kind of reminisce a little bit. Although I'd have to say that there's probably other stuff that I just flat out forgot about. I just need something to jog my memory. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you do as much amazing stuff as you do, it's hard to remember all of it. I mean, yeah. No, I've had. I tell people I've had a great run uh, professionally, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Hmm. And you're mid-race. Don't don't say like you've had a great run, like it's done. You're mid-race, it sounds like. <laughs> oh, yeah. But there's a, a lot of miles on these knees. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we start wrapping up, I'm curious, what haven't we asked you about that you think is important to share, either about the field or ask the, as an organization? No, I think you 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 know crisscross so many places of, that we we were able to kind of cover all the things I really want to talk about, um, and I couldn't think of anything more that needed to be added. I think if anything pops up, we can maybe edit it into a text, but I, I doubt it. Yeah. Well, Might let me just say, mean we have to do a second episode. Yeah, that's right. Podcast two. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, let me say on behalf of the team, thank you again, Dr. Zykowski. We're so appreciative of you sharing your story. I've learned so much. I know the listeners have learned so much. And um, we just really appreciate your time and everything that you've put into helping the field, whether it be your graduate students, your amazing collaborations, or just your individual work. So thank you for everything that you've put into the field and for putting into ASP. Thanks, Eric. I'm grateful for this opportunity. It was, it was wonderful. It was just kind of fun to reflect back on stuff and share it with other people. Yeah. And, and I think the whole project that you're doing is great because it's a way of preserving some of the ancient history. 
or not so ancient. Well, and selfishly, I learned so much from this. So even if it wasn't a project, I would enjoy doing it. We just hear hear the stories are so illuminating to hear what we've we've come from and where we where we might be going from from perspectives that have really seen it from the the beginning to where we are now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, a long way from being. And I know now I need to come go a long to- way from being a high school teacher and thought I had the best job in the world. Yeah. <laughs> I also know now I need to go to Banff. I, yeah. I, I Banff is now high on my travel list. Yeah, I, I need place, to get yeah. to Banff. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, we've asked Dr. Zykowski has answered. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we will see you next time. <laughs>